Welcome to the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast, the podcast that helps you find solutions for your weight concerns that will last a lifetime. You've got this. This podcast contains general educational information on weight loss for physicians. I am not providing medical advice and listening to this podcast does not create a physician-patient relationship. This podcast does not replace the need for consultation with a licensed professional and no information should be relied upon unless you have obtained specific advice or treatment from myself or another physician. Please review the terms and conditions located at www.weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca before continuing. Welcome to episode 129 of the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Siobhan Key. Thanks so much for joining me today. I have a fantastic episode for you today. I'm joined by Mike Collins, who runs sugaraddiction.com. And we're talking about all things sugar addiction. And he's got some really interesting points and approaches that are a little bit different than what we've talked about before on this podcast. So even if you don't identify with sugar addiction, I do think it's well worth a listen. And listening just about the impact that sugar might be having on your eating and on your life in general. And so without further ado, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. It's an honor. I appreciate it. Yeah, I think we're going to have a lot of fun today, just from the little bit that we were talking about before we started recording. But could you introduce yourself to everybody who's listening? Yeah, I mean, I got the short version, the podcast version. I got a bunch of versions. My name is Mike Collins, and I'm the founder of SugarAddiction.com. The story of how I got here is I thought I grew up as a regular kid. You know, I mean, I, I was covered up in sugar, basically, as all of America is. It's a kind of a sad story at the beginning, my mom, my grandma, her mother died when she was eight years old. And she really, they owned the country store across the way. And they, anytime she came in, they would, my grandfather made this deal, just give it to her. So she really thought sugar was love. And then she really, I think until she died, she believed that. And so we had it like really early and I never thought anything. We had unfettered access to the sugar bowl. We could put as much <laughs> sugar on our cornflakes or whatever as we wanted you know, we would be scraping out a half an inch on the bottom. It was crazy. And, and so fast forward, you know, I uh, ran into beer. I didn't know that was changing my state, right? Now, this is the uh, kind of into we talked about before we came on. It's a kind of an integral part of the story. It's a great video on YouTube, Eric Clapton, uh, with Ed Bradley from 60 Minutes. And Ed, Ed says to Eric, they're sitting in his $7 million Antigua treatment center. And Ed says to uh, Eric, he says, so, Eric, this addiction thing, it started with heroin, right? And Eric Clapton says, no, Ed, it started with sugar. I started at five years old eating bread and butter and sugar sandwiches to change my state, right? And so remember that kind of idea as we move through this. But fast forward to me till about 14 or 15, I run into beer. And I know beer changes my state. You know, I was kind of shy. And we would drink behind the high school. And I was able to talk to girls at the dance kind of thing. So that was like the first awareness of that. And then another quick fast forward to about 28 and I got sober. That's a completely another podcast. But after my sobriety, I literally fell right back into the sugar. I did that substitute one drug for another. And I fall into the sugar and I was a thin athletic guy and I gained a lot of weight. And my face was all broken out and that kind of thing. I'm trying to, you know, understand this. So I read a book called Sugar Blues. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's an older book. 
And the author ended up marrying Gloria Swanson, the famous movie star. And they promoted this book pretty heavily in the late 70s and early 80s. And uh, I loved the history lesson. I just loved the idea of how sugar worked its way into our diet. And so the sugar working its way into our diet really revolves around the slave trade. The British Empire growing big enough to take over the entire world on the backs of sugar and slavery. And so I don't know how, you know, the universe or God or whatever put it in my head to, you know, this was a thing of mine. So I started the process of quitting sugar and flour and caffeine. Uh, it took a couple of years alone because I really didn't have anybody to talk to about it. And uh, I talked the woman that I was married to at the time into having children, two children, they were twins. And they didn't have sugar in the womb. They didn't have sugar, flour, or caffeine in the womb until they were six years old. And we regained our composure that next day. And through their entire childhood, they never really had sugar in the house at all. And they had it a little at outside birthday parties. But anyway, I the kids always said I should write a book about sugar. And I did eventually do that in 2018. But in 2010, I bought the name sugaraddiction.com and I started giving information out because it was kind of my thing. And uh, nothing really happened. I mean, some people took it and ran with it. And I was finding the best research and, you know, blogging about it and whatever. But it wasn't until I was kind of semi-retired about three or four years ago that I started coaching people and having these online groups and forums that the thing really just took off. And we come to find out that people really do need a lot of support to do this because it's such a societally accepted addiction and problem. So that's the short version, a massive podcast version that usually brings up more questions than it answers. But, you know, that's how we got here. And that's my story. And I'm sticking to it, I guess. Yeah. And I, you know, I think I first became aware of you on your annual symposium where um, you bring together a lot of different experts about sugar addiction. The Quit Sugar Summit. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Quit sugar Summit. It's our sixth year. Our seventh event is in September. Yeah. Yeah. The great event. Yeah. It's great. Like it's kind of everybody who speaks on this all in one place. Yeah. It really is. It's the who's who. And the interesting part is a lot of them never really got any exposure and they kind of been researching in anonymity and we kind of shined a lot of light on it. and It's gained a lot of momentum now. It's pretty big now. So that brings up the big question of why is it that you think sugar and processed food addiction doesn't get the exposure? Exactly. It's still fairly controversial, as I'm sure you know, that not everybody believes in it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's very controversial. And uh, you know, it's not really in the DSM. It's not in the manual that describes these things, which is just crazy because caffeinism is. Caffeine is crazy. But And I think there has been, uh, should we put it the, kindly, I don't want any, uh, any problems because I don't really have a problem with the big sugar producers, but you know they have obfuscated the information around sugar for decades now, and they have a big machinery that is vested in getting this products to people. And Michael Moss's new book, Hooked, you could probably get him on this show, is just amazing in chronicling what they've done over the decades to to understand the addictive nature of sugar and to weaponize it against their customers, in essence, you know, to get them hooked earlier and earlier with the sugar sweetened beverages and stuff and the cereals. And so it's been a, why it isn't known, I think is a multifaceted. The second part I think is 
that people don't like the word addiction. Even Google and Facebook don't like the words addiction. I mean, it's still stigmatized. And a lot of our recovery work comes from the world of food addiction. I got started in late state food addiction, right? And that means people two and 300 pounds overweight, losing limbs, going blind, and they still can't quit sugar. Doctor says, you're going to die this year if you don't you know, quit the sugar diabetes two diagnosis and whatever. And they still can't quit, right? To me, in working with these folks, this is the definition of addiction. And when you talk to the folks, I always use this proverbial, I think we talked about before we got started, I always use this proverbial person who lost 100 to 200 pounds and kept that weight off and fell to a right-sized body, put diabetes 2 in remission or something, you know, really recovered from their sugar addiction through abstinence. That person does not talk about the food or the exercise or the diet that they were on. They talk about the emotional management recovery that they went through, the growth that they had in that part of their life. So that's kind of the why I believe that it just doesn't get a fair shift. You know, I was the, last year the chairman of the Food Addiction Institute, which has been around 2005, nonprofit uh, 501c. And their goal, their stated goal is to get this named in the, the World Health Organization and the DSM the next time around. And it might not be this time by the looks of, you know, the food pyramid that just came out. There's just not a lot of support yet. But I just tell people, they spend five minutes in my inbox, five minutes on my instant messenger, they will know the pain that's out there. And, I, you know, look, the obesity numbers mirror what I'm saying here. It's not since the 80s, it's gone straight up, just straight up, you know, to the right on a curve. You're referring to in the 80s, kind of the fat, low fat craze that then resulted in sugar being, the fat being replaced by sugar in most food. Right. Demonized. Yeah. Yeah, no, fat was demonized and sugar was elevated. I know that's a terrible way to put it, but it was, you know, they took the fat out and they replaced it with sugar and high fructose corn syrup really in a big way hit the marketplace and into the food system. And they run parallel. The growth of the high fructose corn syrup in the food system and the obesity numbers, they run, you know, parallel straight up and to the right or, you know, on a 45 degree angle, straight up and to the right to on a graph. Yeah. Let's talk about the label of addiction because this, it came up recently with somebody I was working with. Some people find it really helpful to have that label, like to hear about sugar addiction and to be like, ah, that's what it is. Like, it's not me, it's this external substance. Whereas like you said, it's still a stigmatized term. So some people, even if they identify with it, they struggle with that label and that term, it, it makes them feel ashamed or something else, something negative about the fact that they're experiencing this. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about your experience with how people relate to using those labels personally? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it is the bane of my existence. <laughs> I've got to trick people into the programs because they don't want to hear it up front, right? They want to think that they're doing what's all the rage now, which is a sugar detox. They want to, you know, give it a break, go pause, push the pause button for a little bit. They want to do a detox, right? So I bring people in under the guise that they're doing a detox. And then I kind of spring it on them that they may want to look at the possibility that they could be addicted to sugar. And then, so I ease them into it. And, you know, the addiction component is like, 
how do I put this in a kind way? It's just what it is. I mean, you could change the names around and, you know, they have changed the names of drug addicts and addiction there to substance use disorder. And I actually believe that may happen before sugar addiction gets into the DSM. I believe it will be named processed food use disorder or sugar use disorder. And I think it's logical. I think it's the right thing to do. It's the kind of the right side of history, if you will. But People just, they can't get over it. They can't get over it in the drug and alcohol world. So it's really hard in this world. Mm-hmm. And this cleaving apart of the substances where whole food is on one side and sugar and flour and caffeine are on another side, where these are they're substances that are psychoactive that will affect the nucleus accumbens and whatever. Whereas on the other side, we share the delivery system, right? And the idea that you're addicted to food sounds ridiculous, right? You're not addicted to food. It's true. You're addicted to these psychoactive substances that have been reduced to a drug-like form, a white powder. So, again, it's a complicated kind of stigmatized thing that uh, no one can really put their finger on how to change yet. And it's just an evolutionary thing that's got to happen slowly, I guess. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, the other thing I find interesting with sugar is you could probably find a lot of people that are okay with the idea of cutting alcohol out and like could see how it would make sense that somebody would cut alcohol out of their life and not drink it or choose to not drink it at all. When it comes to sugar, people seem to struggle with that. Like there's something about sugar and processed food that seems to be thought of like if you're cutting it out, you're engaging in some form of restriction that seems outside of the realm of normal or expected. Why do you think it's approached differently than the other substances in our life? I think it's cultural, to be honest with you. And the sad part about this, and I'm going to, especially on this podcast, I might get a little bit of, I, I'm deal, I can deal with it because it's, I'm there now on the other side of the fence. But even the food uh, or the eating disorder specialists, right, they believe that if you demonize a food, quote unquote, then you're not recovering, you're not changing, right? And this includes uh, anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating. And it's just not true. I mean, in my world, it's just not true. There are people that biochemically cannot ingest sugar. And the stigma around demonizing, and here's a real important distinction in that bulimia and anorexia and possibly even some parts of binge eating are process addictions like gambling and sex. And sugar and flour are true substance use disorders, if that makes sense. And so this delineation is not even well known with dietitians or, like I said, eating disorder folks, and they don't dive further into it. But the people that I respect, the people that have been on the summit, who've talked about it this way, in this way, have made that delineation. And my background being in addiction, you know, medicine, addiction, recovery, and helping people It's very clear to me now that this is what the delineation is and should be and should remain and should grow. But that's culturally not the case. It's and even in the professional world, it's not yet accepted. It's slowly being accepted as people tell their story the same way that the people in the drug and alcohol world, the large K Street, Washington, D.C. nonprofits have chosen to destigmatize, which is 
have everyone tell their story who has recovered, mm-hmm. they tell the story that I'm telling. You know, not necessarily the folks that are writing the textbooks and, and, and out there again. Anyway, it's a tough subject right now in the world. So it's an important one, I think. And I wonder if it's partly because, you know, maybe the people that are writing the policies and are promoting everything in moderation are the people that the substances don't influence their brain in quite the same way. Like they don't have the lived experience of feeling compelled to eat the food, even though there's harm happening in their body because of the food, where they can just have a little bit and walk away and haven't experienced the inability to have a little bit and walk away. Great insight. They're normies. Yeah. You know, the work out of the Food Addiction Institute is quite clear that one third of people, and these track with the obesity numbers too, but you can be a thin sugar addict. I want to clarify that. But about one third of people biochemically cannot handle this product without a massive setup for cravings. And it could be culturally, it could have happened in the womb. It, it doesn't matter how it happened. It happened. It's like being an alcoholic. You've got to accept it because fighting against it is a useless ridiculous long-term battle that'll never you'll never win if you biochemically can't ingest it. And about a third of people are what we call harmful users and harmful users, they've just I call them push alcoholics or push sugar addicts, meaning they've ingested it for so long that now they have either a a physiological dependency on it or a, a brain reward. And this is, you know, we'll get into this in a minute, but the brain reward chemical information in the last five years has just exploded. And so those harmful users, they, they're adapted to it now and, and they like it and they use it as a emotional management tool. And the weight comes on sometimes. So you have a third of people obese, a third of people overweight. And then about a third of people are like normal. They're normies. They can, you say that, and a lot of athletes and diet people, they are normies. They've never had what you call the lived experience of this. And so they can't relate. And so they can have a half a glass of wine. They can have a half a cupcake and leave it sitting there, which, you know, people like me are amazed at. They, I'm like, oh my, how can you have half a cupcake? What? That's ridiculous. Why would you do that? And so, you know, until like, it's a great term you use, lived experience of the people who have gone through it and recovered gets to be public knowledge, which is my basic goal in life with the summit and you know, all the stuff that we do. The stigma of it and the education of it is not going to change. The science is there. As I said, the last five years has brought so much movement forward in the understanding of the nucleus accumbens and the reward system in the brain, the, the dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, GABA, the adrenal glands, oxytocin, the big one, and you know even your endorphins, you know, normally runners high. All these things are affected by sugar and flour and caffeine. These things are played with. We're like literally like trying to create a cocktail to assuage current stressors, old stressors, old trauma. I mean, 80, 90% of people who recover have some old trauma that they're covering up, right? Forget about handling today's stress. And when people begin to understand that they are able to not use drugs and alcohol, but use sugar and flour and Again, when you talk to these people who have recovered, that's exactly how they did it. That's exactly how they got recovery is because they understood it. The light bulb went on, okay? I tell this story of a woman in our program. She's now one of my coaches. And she was a Weight Watchers leader twice in her life in two different decades. 
And she yo-yoed the whole time, up and down, up and down, doing the food, whatever. She went first when she was 16 on her mother's plan. She was illegal. And I was doing a testimonial with her. And I said, Bethany, what, why did this click this time? Why did this work? Why were you able to change and keep it long term where, you know, through the decades, she's approaching 50 years old. You know, why, why didn't your attempts before, she's got a list of like 18 different plans she's tried, diet plans, including the Weight Watchers leaders groups. And she said, Mike, I was above addiction. That was her answer. She's like, it wasn't me. I was not addicted. That was not something I was willing or able to accept. I knew about it, you know, she said, but she just wasn't willing or able to accept it. And so, again, we're right back to the stigmatization. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, that stigma comes with thoughts of, okay, if I identify with this, what then does it mean for my life? Which it means probably you shouldn't eat the substance. And then what does that mean for every cultural like celebration that we have? particularly in North America, you know, like there, I think it comes with a lot when people are considering whether or not they like having this label or, or they want to own it or approach it that way. Now you referenced towards the beginning of this interview, talking about the coping strategies right. and the need to relearn new coping strategies, mm-hmm. which I think is really important. Do you want to talk a little bit more in detail about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The core of it is with the original understanding that you have used sugar and flour to manage your emotional state or your emotional life. It's a very known and well understood and well accepted construct in the drug and alcohol world that if you start using drugs and alcohol at 14 or 15 years old, you stop growing emotionally. Very well known if you go to treatment, even in the trust up stuff, that's very well understood. Your, your life's a mess, your relationships are a mess, your career is a mess because, you know, you didn't deal with problems. It, you didn't learn a tool set to deal with problems. You dealt with them through the substance that day and they were still there the next day. And then you did it again at four o'clock, you know, so... It's the same kind of thing with sugar and flour when you get the recovery. And you need, in the early days of a detox and a, and a shift, a pivot, change in lifestyle, change in diet, you need to adopt these things early on. You can't, like, wait. You've heard the research. The research is lore. It's scientific lore. When people lose a large amount of weight, 90-plus percent of them gain it all back in the first year. The CDC did a study on the biggest loser and had the same exact results. How did they lose weight? 98% of all diets, any diet, the original core of all diets is quit the white stuff, period. That every single diet you can ever, they got a bunch of other celery this and diet that and exercise this. But at the end of the day, every one of them at its core says quit the white stuff. And that's what people do. They restrict the white stuff but they never changed their emotional management system that they adopted probably in the womb, definitely by one years old, they were being fed sugar. Just think back. I mean, when was the last time you saw a movie where a woman got dumped by a man and didn't have an ice cream party, right? I mean, we're talking about a a situation where your mother was busy, she had a job, she had other kids. When you were crying, instead of getting down on your level, giving you a hug, say, what's wrong, dear? What she did was hand you a cookie and point you to the television or hand you two cookies and there are three cookies. And, and you learn, we learned how to manage our emotions with this substance, right? And, you know, fast forward out the other side of the recovering person, 
when they graph that all out, when they you know put it on a, a spreadsheet on their life up and down with sugar and flour, you can spot the stress points. You can spot the times in their life where life with the divorce or finances and they gained 30 pounds in the divorce and blah, blah, blah. You can see it very, very clearly. And the goal is to smash the norm, let them see this clearly, get with thousands of other people that we've walked through this who tell the same story about their emotional rejiggering, their emotional remanagement tool or change, and just keep spreading that message and just keep moving them through the system so that they can understand why. Because people are flummoxed. They just don't understand why they can't beat this thing. And a lot of it comes down to information, sure, but it comes down to sheer acceptance of something that is changing pretty rapidly in society, but not yet all the way there as a health issue, right? As a health care issue, mm-hmm. like mental health and the stigmatization there. It's the same type of thing. I think too, the other thing that gets in the way a little bit is if you're used to managing your emotions with sugar and flour or other substances, when you try something else, like going for a walk or sitting and reading a book, Initially, it does not feel the same. No, <laughs> it doesn't feel like no. it, like it's going to do anything. And so there's that element of having to like trust that over time it will actually help and continuing to practice that. Whereas I think a lot of a lot of times you can try some of that. It doesn't quite feel the same. And then you end up back with the sugar or the eating to try to cope with whatever's going on. And feel like the other stuff never works, but really it needs some practice and some time for your dopamine receptors to recalibrate and adjust. Not truer words have ever been spoken, man. This takes time. This is sometimes a long time, depending on your habit. People want change and results, mostly the weight loss. We got the phrase, you know, people come for the vanity, they stay for the sanity. You know, it's like your brain is not, and I've been harder on this and I haven't really wanted to, but I've been saying it flat out to people, your brain is in no shape to make these decisions at this point. And it takes time to rehab your brain. I mean, I'm sure you know Dr. Daniel Amen, who's been on PBS and does tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of brain scans. And people don't realize that their brain is this affected. And so they want instant results. They want to change in, you know, they want to lose a 50 pounds in a month, right? Or, they, you know, that's the outward appearance thing. But they really want the recovery, the lifestyle change immediately. It just doesn't work that way. It takes, you know, time and effort, like you say, to recalibrate your brain chemicals, to you know, heal your body from the inflammation, and to reorder your emotional life. Athletes have a little bit better time. That's why I think the producers of the big losers have a lot of ex-athletes because they have muscle memory and they can substitute harder, quicker dopamine hits. And that's basically what the show was about was, you know, how fast can we get huge amounts of dopamine into folks? But the average person who, you know, wasn't an athlete like that, that takes time and it takes time to reorder everything. So yeah, you're hundred percent right. I mean, it just takes, takes some time. So how do you encourage people to take that time and to like rebuild those co- or build those coping strategies when it feels hard and it feels like it's not working? The secret sauce, the magic formula is the community. It's 
always been the community for addiction. The opposite of addiction is connection. And you're looking at a group of people who, man, they're smiling and laughing and having a good time. And they say they used to weigh 100 pounds more. I can't believe it. It's not possible. But they show you pictures. And then all of a sudden, you're like, okay, well, it worked for them. And, you know, let me try it and let me get into this community a little bit. And then when you're down, that's another one of your coping strategies that we talked about. Yeah, you can take a walk and go to yoga, but you can also just, you know, log into the group or call a friend or, you know, call your coach or whatever. Somebody that has been there, done this, and, you know, it seems to have your best interest at heart for both accountability and what we call a loving mirror so that someone can reflect back to you stuff they've already been through. And when you have a disproportionate amount of people who have already been through this and you're the lone person who's whining about this, that, and the other candy that you can't have, you know, you don't fit into the group. And those folks, people were herd animals. You know, we want to stay in a cohort, a group of people who we like or they're doing the same things. And so, you adapt and you adapt to that group that is a positive group. And again, it's the magic that, you know, that's why the 12 steps, the largest personal development you know, group in the world, because not, you know, forget about the spirituality, forget about the stupid sayings, forget about it all. What it comes down to, and there's a lot of peer reviewed studies on this. And, you know, it doesn't matter if it's diabetes or cancer survivor or this or that or whatever. If you're in a peer group, that are all moving in the same direction of wellness, then you do better. The studies all prove this. And so it's not magic, really, but it is the willingness to leave maybe your own family of origin and definitely your peer group for a time or at least join another group and get that support system and build in that support system. So when the going gets tough, and like those 90 plus percent of people that gain all the weight back in the first year and you're in the ninth month and you get a divorce, you don't go back to the sugar to handle the divorce. You actually go to the group and you talk it out or whatever, you know. I know it sounds simplistic, mm-hmm. but again, a lot of peer-reviewed studies and a lot of proof that it does work. Yeah, you know, I think simplistic is great because when it comes to weight loss or trying to feel in control of eating, we have been kind of taught that it should be hard and that it should be complex and it has to be this like certain number of macros and all this stuff. But really, uh, a lot of it comes down to some really simple stuff that you do consistently, which ultimately gets you the results. What do you think of the other place or area of controversy that sometimes comes up is the concept of complete abstinence versus mm-hmm. sometimes eating it? Sure. And so from your experience, does it have to always be complete abstinence from sugar and flour? <laughs> do I have to do this for the rest of my life? My main number one question. And uh, the answer is maybe. It depends. So I got this little fan, I call it buying into Mikey's little fantasy, okay? And what it is, is, you know what a scratch test is? Like an allergist scratch test? Mm -hmm. So an allergist scratch test for your audience, I'm sure most of them know that they're all doctors, but, you know, you scratch ragweed, pollen, dust, whatever, and you put a little Band-Aid over it, and then they look at it the next couple days and see if it caused an irritation, right? And they find out if you're allergic to something. Well, my scratch test, our scratch test is, 
give me 90 days. Just give me 90 days. There's nobody going to, there's no doctors, there's no regulators. Nobody's going to say that quitting sugar for 90 days is going to, you know, be some big health problem, whatever. So I just say, give me 90 days of abstinence and you make the decision at that point. Never, ever, ever to this date do I know thousands of detoxes, thousands of 90 days is, people got the 90 days. Have I ever had anyone turn back who actually truly gave me 100% abstinence? A, abstinence, 100% abstinence is 100 times easier than attempts at moderation. We have attempted moderation for decades. The $72 billion diet industry has attempted moderation for decades, and we're still fatter and sicker. Right, the whole society is fat, and each of us individually fatter and sicker. So just give me ninety days. Their skin clears up. They're falling to a right size body. Their processing power and memory starts to come back. The brain fog clears. And look, full disclosure, full transparency. Some people do fall back after ninety days, or you know later on, but they always come back. They always come back to the group. They always come back to the. The process, it's hard. I mean, when I was trying to quit drinking or when I was trying to do this, when everyone's trying to do it, you're going to fight to the very end not to give up this dopamine hit. Mm -hmm. And when people really cleave apart the idea that they're not trying to get a sweet treat, they are not trying to get, you know, their cravings are not to submit to a treat of, uh, I don't got to stop using that word because it's a terrible reward, but a sugary substance. What happens is they finally, finally admit that they can't do it. They give up the fight, okay? And it takes every sweet treat it takes. It takes whatever it takes to get you there. But once you get there, you accept it. And and people have done what we call research and development. They'll go back out and try it. But that always leads, that doesn't work. For the third of people that I describe and for a lot of the second third of people that I describe, it just doesn't work. And... The fight is useless in a lot of ways. It's just delaying time, right? So anyway, I mean, I get kind of passionate about it because I want to save people the time of the back and forth, Mm. right? I don't want to see them have to go back and forth. And the only way to do that is to give me 90 days of 100% abstinence. And you make the decision. On day 91, Mm -hmm. one thing that they're not doing is the N1 experiment with one thing. Okay, so maybe they want to try a coffee or maybe they want to try spelt flour or maybe they want to try something else. One thing and see how you feel, see how it reacts in your body. But right now we're pounding ourselves with 21 teaspoons of sugar a day average. You know, if you've got any habit at all, Coke is 12, you know, 30, 40 teaspoons of sugar. That's the four flour every single day, your nucleus accumbens, your dopamine, serotonin, it doesn't have a prayer. It's never been at the factory settings, maybe in the womb. And you just have never known what maybe what calm feels like. Uh, So again, I get on a soapbox a little bit, but you understand what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. It's like, I want to save folks the time. They don't need to do it because thousands have already tried it. You know, they've tried to moderate. They've tried to do a little here and a little there. And it just doesn't work. Not for everyone, not for everyone, but for the folks who have listened this far in this podcast, it's not going to work. I, I got this thing at, at sugaraddiction.com. I got this quiz. I say, if you listen to a podcast like this and you get to the, you get to the site, sugaraddiction.com, 
And you don't have to take the quiz because I guarantee that you don't need to. You're already there, right? You've already, you knew it, like deep down you knew it, but then, you know, you let it go again because of the cultural, you know, you don't want to be left out. You don't want to be alone. And let's um, talk kind of from a practical standpoint and kind of bringing in that concept of the culture for people who do decide, okay, I'm doing it. I'm going totally abstinent. Do you have practical ways of handling not eating sugar around other people who expect that you would? So things like celebrations, birthdays, you know, going out for, it's not like we do this a lot right now with COVID, but going out for dinner with a friend who you would normally share a dessert with. Mm -hmm. How do you handle saying no to the sugar from a practical standpoint without feeling kind of like you're standing out would be what people worry about? It's a great question. And to be honest, one of the core pillars of what we do, it's so important to help to refigure, rejigger those things to understand that there is change required there. I always share a story of a woman who had 90 days with us or something, or her friend's husband died. And after, you know, a grieving period, three weeks or four weeks, they went to lunch and same exact thing happened. They, you know, time came for dessert and the woman wanted her dessert and whatever. And the woman just did not have the wherewithal, the courage to begin this conversation when it was really about, you know, getting together after her husband of 40 years had passed kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, she broke down and she, you know, she had the sugar. She regained her resolve and she went on to make it a lifestyle. But that is an example of what happens all the time. And for the most part, most of the people we deal with, they're the only one in the family. And a lot of our folks are women, and they're the not only the grocery shopper, but the cook for the husband and the children. And they have a difficult time because they don't want to stand out. And they have what would I call a credibility issue because they've been on 20 diets and, okay, mom's doing it again, and nobody pays any attention to them. And so I like to tell them, you know, go stealth for a little while. Just don't tell anybody. And here's the thing that I want to impress upon people is that like the people that have already recovered, what you're going to find out, and I'm here to tell you that no one cares. No one is paying attention to what you're eating. Now, you won't feel that at the beginning. You're going to feel like you're the odd man out, you're abnormal, but no one cares. And as a matter of fact, it flip-flops at about six months after and 40 or 50 pounds, and then your family starts to support you. They start to brag about you because they've seen the results, right? But in the beginning, you're 100% right that it's difficult socially, culturally, familially, a lot of reasons when you change what you've always done, right? You were always a sugar person. You were a baker or you were whatever. So, yeah, it's very intuitive of you because it's very real. But there is an answer to it. And it's just another, it takes a little bit of time, a little bit of orientation to, you know, get your feet under you. Mm-hmm. I think I always talk to the people and, and patients that I work with of just coming up with some statement that works for you. Because not everybody wants to get into details and discussion about it at every situation. And this is true for sugar addiction, or if you're just trying to eat differently, like follow a lower carb diet for your health. You don't always want to get into the conversation every time because sometimes then people have their own opinions that (laughs) really want to share with you that don't necessarily match your opinions. Always. And so coming up with some statements that you can just be like, 
not eating that right now, or I just don't feel like that right now. Something simple that then doesn't add more conversation if you don't want it, but works and lets you kind of get out of it. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, we don't have, a, and that's why I like this podcast forum. It takes about that long of an arc for me to explain the things that I've explained. And we don't have a meat is murder. And we don't have friends don't let friends drive drunk. We don't have an instant thing that someone can say to their friend kind of thing where they take a stand. Because of all the things you mentioned, it, it's complex if someone starts the discussion. So one of the things that's worked for me over the years is I can't have sugar. Now, if that's for people you don't know, usually servers in a restaurant, and they will literally go to bat for you. They think you have diabetes. You don't have to tell them you don't. They just say, I can't eat sugar. And they go running back to the chef and they get everything straight for you. And for family, you know, it's like, like I say, you just say, just stealth, you know, just don't do anything at the beginning. Get yourself into the group, get yourself into the, the process a little bit. But you're right, it's difficult because of other people's perception. They will, they will fight you. I mean, they will fight you. They don't want to give up their stuff. They don't want to see it. They don't want to look at it. And if you're doing it, then maybe they're doing it wrong kind of thing. So it is a... a yeah, it's a reflection. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So before we wrap up, we've covered a lot of stuff, but are there any other tips or thoughts you would like to leave people with? Yeah, the one thing that I always tell folks is that I don't know why this happened. It's just uh, pattern recognition. You know, it just keeps happening where we've been able to pinpoint things through the detox and through the process of success for thousands of folks is that most of the people are what tech people call early adopters, meaning they're not afraid to do their own research and then do something that goes a little against the grain of what's a norm in society. When you search back to their history and whatever, they have been the first person to go to college. They may be great in athletics. Heck, they might be the best mechanic in town or whatever. They might be, they have left their family of origin and joined another tribe or group or their cohort group in high school and they've moved on and they've had success in other realms of their life that they can translate to this and do their research and just put their toe in the water and see if this group of people is nuts, crazy, and, you know, extreme, or they are really on to something. And that seems to be the description of the folks that seem to get success. The folks that we never went into this, but the issues that mirror the addictive process of codependency, the people with deeper, longer, stronger codependent ties to their family and their friends and kind of stuff, they have a harder time because now they've got to look at their codependency right in the face because of the stuff that we talked about, the social interaction of folks. And so it's very difficult, not difficult, but yeah, it is difficult to break loose of that if you haven't done it before in some way as an early adopter. But, you know, as it becomes more mainstream, then it'll be easier for more folks. So we got to play with who shows up. And right now the early adopters are showing up. Yeah. And I think like you're right, as it becomes more mainstream and it's talked more about, it becomes easier to, well, it removes the stigma, which I think is a huge piece of it, but it also becomes easier to start you know, the first time you hear about it, you might be able to, those, that sounds wackadoodle, like never eat sugar, like what the heck. Right. And then, you know, a couple more times you hear about it, then you might start thinking, yeah, yeah, you know, maybe it, that is a little bit me. And then over time, it, if it's what you need, it'll hopefully start to resonate and 
let you take those steps of trying the time without it and seeing how it goes. Well, it's, it's exactly what you said. It's just an experiment. Just give it a try. Yeah. I love that concept for everything with eating and, and weight and everything of viewing it as an experiment. Try it. See what happens. Tweak it if it's not working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where can people find you? Sugaraddiction.com. We recently, it's not really up yet, but we recently purchased sugardetox.com because that's where people come in. So probably maybe somebody's listening to this next year or something that'll be up. The Quit Sugar Summit is twice a year. If you leave your email there, you can get all the science that I've been talking about, not from me, but from, you know, Robert Lustig and Michael Gorin, the founder of the the Gorin Lab here at USC and, you know, people that have been studying. Michael Gorin's been studying childhood obesity for 30 years and has raised $50 million about it. But no one knows about Michael Gorin, you know what I mean? They know about weight loss gurus and that kind of stuff, but they don't know about someone who's actually been in the trenches and studied this stuff. And so the, the Quit Sugar Summit will get you that information. The science, the absolute, the deep science. Yeah. And I, I was just going to say, it's a great summit. Like there's fantastic speakers in it. Yeah. So yeah, sugaraddiction.com is where our home is mostly. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I've really enjoyed the chat. Well, thank you. And you're doing great work. I mean, you know, one of the touch points of physicians that you're you know, servicing in your work is like anything. If we can get them on board to understand this in a deep way, personally, maybe, then they can spread it to their clients and stuff. All right. That was a fantastic interview. And I really enjoyed having the time to sit down and talk to Mike and pick his brain about his approach to sugar addiction. I think there was a lot of really good information in there. And I think honestly, the takeaway point I would suggest is thinking about coping strategies. This came up in this interview. It came up with my interview with Dr. Sivas, that when we take away the sugar you have to think about what's underneath and how you're going to cope with what you've been using the sugar to cope with. Another place that you can get more help and my thoughts about this is episode about what happens when the food goes away, which I released this spring. So looking back in the podcast for what happens when the food goes away to think about why was the food there in the first place and what was it doing and how are you going to manage it when it goes away. Now you heard Mike talk about the importance of community and honestly, I think that's one of the biggest, most impactful things about my stress eating SOS program, that we are creating community with physicians who are struggling with issues like this or binge eating or stress eating, where we can talk openly about what it's like and find solutions together and work on a coaching approach that allows you to understand the underlying reasons and allows you to figure out solutions that actually work in your life, even on the really busy weeks, without a ton of willpower, so that it can be a permanent change and that you can see really lasting differences in your eating habits, but also in the rest of your life. If that sounds good to you, the next group is going to be starting in the fall. So make sure you get on the wait list so that you get notified as soon as we release dates. And also, I release some bonus things to the wait list. So last time we did a bonus coaching call, they don't have it totally planned what I'll, we'll do this time for people on the wait list, but there'll be some bonus things that you can access. So head over to weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca forward slash SOS and save your seat by getting on the wait list. There's no obligation when you get on the wait list. It just signs you up to receive more information about the program as we release it. And like I said, you'll get some 
invites that are sent only to the waitlist once you're on it. All right. Any questions, send me an email at info at weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca. And otherwise, thank you so much for listening. Have a great week. Bye-bye.